Blog Talk Radio.
uh, call in at 323-679-0841. Hit 1, and we'll acknowledge your last four numbers. But before we get to the theme today, like always, the way we get started with our party is to introduce our political panelists and analysts and then talk a little bit about what's going on in our world community. Then we'll follow it, follow it with our today's theme. So right now, we bring, we introduce you to our political panelists and analysts, and we'll start off with Brother Anthony. We'd like to welcome you to Africa on the Moon. Uh, thanks for having me, Brother Africa. Revolutionary greetings to you, the fellow panelists, and the uh, audience. My name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. Objective is Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Father Brother Anthony, we will now bring in Brother Haki. Welcome, Brother Haki, to Africa on the Move. Uh, thanks for having me, Brother Africa. My name is Haki Kamafinishoke, Colonel with African Awareness, and I'm interested in institution building. Uh, you know, when we talk about the importance of institutions, one thing we have to begin to understand is that what goes globally, uh, what happens globally happens locally. I'll give you an example. Recently, there was an election in um, Brazil in which a far-right individual by the name of Bolsonaro won the election. And the question is, how was he able to win an election? Well, he wanted something with the help of the CIA. Now, often we hear in the media where they talk about the fact that Russia engages in tapping into other people's congressional uh, races, you know, in their in respective countries. Well, no one ever talks about the long history in terms of U.S. interference in, in, in elections. And the question is, why does the U.S. continue to involve itself in people's elections? Well, one of the reasons why, perhaps the only reason is because of the disenfranchisement of leftist progressive voters and political parties and to protect the interests of the, of the multinational corporations. In other words, they want to create a world in which multinational companies, U.S. multinationals, go anywhere in the world and export their people, export their labor, export their resources, and make tons and tons of money. And this notion that, in fact, that they're concerned about democracy is a misnomer. They have no interest at all in terms of, rock, in terms of democracy. One of the things when we talk about Ukraine and we look in terms of what happened with Poroshenko, how he was paid $3 billion in terms of you know, fomenting the spread of Nazism in uh, Ukraine, the question becomes, why would you want to revitalize such a, a, a ideology, given what happened to the Roma people or the so-called gypsies, what happened to Jews uh, in Nazi Germany? Why would you want to revitalize such a system? Well, if it serves the interests of multinationals, it serves the interests of corporations, then it's, it's fine. And when we look at, uh, for instance, uh, Gore, Bush versus Gore, and we talk about the fact that Gore won a popular, popular vote, but nonetheless lost the election because of the Supreme Court, and clearly, the interest of the people in terms of democracy is not a driving force in terms of what their policy do. Also, when we look at Trump, Trump lost about 3 million votes. Right. Now, if, in fact, democracy is so important, then how in the world could someone lose about 3 million votes and still win the election? So clearly, the interest of the, of the powerful has nothing to do in terms of the preservance of democracy. And one thing you got to understand, as an institution, we need those in terms of clarifying exactly what the situation is in terms of what we're confronted with and how it impacts us and what we must do to strategize in terms of being able to actually survive the onslaught that's surely on its way to come. So I think institutions are extremely important, and I think that, you know, we can no longer just, you know, hide from the reality that we, have, must, we must have institutions in terms of help us adequately deconstruct 
precisely what's going on because it's going around us not only in the United States, but it's going on throughout the world. So we've got to be very concerned, but we need institutions in order to think clearly. And I want to thank you, Brother Africa, for having me. Father, thank you, Brother Haki. Father and Brother Haki, we have Brother Jabari. Welcome to Africa on the Move. Thank you. This is Westbrook, resident researcher, looking forward to another cycle program. It's always an honor and privilege to participate with these panelists. Peace to the listening audience. Thank you, Brother Jabari. Brother Jabari, we bring in Brother Moses. Brother Moses, welcome to Africa on the Move. Thank you, thank you, and greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice. My name is Robert Andrew Moses, and I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during a government class back in my high school year, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, the often finisher of my faith, and that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And thank you once again, Brother Ashley, for allowing me to be on the show. Thank you, Brother Moser. Brother Moser, bring in that sister, Sister Hattie. Welcome to Africa on the Move. Thank you. And, yes, I am Sister Hattie Bonds, and I am the founder of Women United, and what we do is support women wherever they are in the spectrum of their development and to cause anything that they need to happen to help them do that and to encourage them. So it's always great to be back. All right. Thank you, Sister Hattie. And to our listening audience, you are listening to Africa on the Move. And like always, again, if you have any views or comments, you can. You are welcome to call in at Three two three six seven nine zero eight four one. Right now, we're going to start with our, seg- with our segment, What's Going On In Your World Community. And we'll start out with Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, what's going on in your world and the community? Okay. Uh, they were a couple of um, uh, uh, elections that were controversial in the U.S. at the state level. Uh, particularly a couple of governor's races in Georgia and Florida. Uh, let's see, uh, the um, uh, the brother that was running for governor of state of Florida conceded the election uh, based on a recount uh, to um, uh, uh, Brother Gillum. And um, the sister that was running for governor of Georgia, I think, uh, uh she uh she had stated that she she couldn't possibly win the election the way things were stacked against her and also there is um u s anti nato summit uh conference that took place in Dublin Ireland this past weekend in which uh there was a call to um to close the shutdown all uh, NATO U.S. bases uh, around the world. Okay, thank you, Brother Anthony. Brother Haki, what's going on in your world and the community? Uh, you know, you know, I got to say, that I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm really irate about the fact that uh, the U.K. Uh, stole 14 tons of gold that belongs to the Venezuelan people. We're talking 550 million dollars worth of gold, which belongs to the Venezuelan people. Now, the Bank of England says that the reason we refuse to release the gold 
just because they're afraid that the President Nicolas Maduro are using it for personal for personal gain. Now, of course, that's ironic. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. It's given the fact that Maduro is a revolutionary, and he's been attempting to uplift his people, you know, uh, for a long, long time. So his practice is pretty, pretty clear. But I really suspect that the real motivation in terms of UK doing what it does, I think a lot, a lot of it has to do with the distraction in terms of the whole Brexit fight that's going on in England right now. So I think that anything that tends to distract from what's really going on in terms of the Brexit um, uh, uh, would play into the hands of uh, those those individuals and positions of power and authority uh, who realize, you know, that um, if if in fact they achieve the Brexit that uh, is, 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 is a no-win situation and that, in fact, it's make more problematic for them in terms of maintaining control in that society. So I think this is a mere distraction, but it's unfortunate this kind of thievery, this kind of criminality is to come and normalize. And, uh, and I think if, unless the world comes to realization, you know, that uh, they're willing to put an end to this kind of criminality, this kind of um, insaneness, then it's going to continue to perpetuate. And I'm very concerned about the future of humanity given this potential or this potency, or, or excuse me, or this, um, or this uh, tendency to actually engage in this kind of criminal activity. Mm. They lie, they cheat, and they steal. Not summertime, all the time. That's what the indigenous people used to say, and that what Brother Kwame Trade used to say. And look like the second continues, huh, Brother Haki? Mm-hmm. Okay, let's move on to Brother Jabari. Brother Jabari, what's going on in your world in the community? What I um, would like to share is there's been a very interesting trend, as you notice, where there's a relationship between popular culture and politics. And in regards to the latest mix, it has been strongly talked about that it may be possible that the Cleveland Browns will give consideration to hiring Condoleezza Rice in some sort of capacity with their organization. Now, given the kind of policies that Condoleezza Rice advocates, one has to ask why would the Browns even want to have her involvement? But yet, as you notice, the trend of those involved in popular culture becoming involved with politics, you notice that unfortunately this is a trend and not a blip. And another example would be that in this current presidential administration, Vince McMahon, owner of the World Wrestling Entertainment um, Company, has a very cozy relationship with number 45. His wife, Linda McMahon, is the Secretary of um, Small Business Administration on his cabinet. So it's very interesting. Not only do you have this relationship, but these people who are involved are people that have a lot of influence in more ways than one. So we got to understand that this is a relationship. It's not a good trend because it's just going to continue to show that in terms of a Western context, and when it comes to politics, money is the name of the game. Thank you, Brother Jabari. Brother Moses, what's going on in your world in the community? Well, well, um, there's a community called Abbey City in D.C., and uh, it's a community, and uh, they're struggling to maintain control over their community and the resources in their community, community centers, schools, etc. And uh, right now there's a, a, a Attempt to take over by uh, selling it to a corporate, corporate selling the community center to a corporation and and uh, the land and having them develop it. 
And um, so the community is fighting to get it placed in a land trust, and that's that's a big issue in D.C. right now. Uh, there are other things going on, but that's one of the key things going on this week. Thank you. And Sister Hattie, thank you, Brother Bowden. Sister Hattie, what's going on in your world in the community? Okay. Well, we are continuing our um, initiative, the uh, Black Women Wisdom 90 and Up, 90-year-old and up women, to bridge the gap in the generations of black women. Uh, We're continuing our program on um, reparations for black women and social media, and it's growing. Um, Also, we are continuing to develop our relationship with our African brothers and sisters in terms of uh, a student exchange program within the continent. Um, just to continue that relationship and actually, you know, bring some of the young people uh, over that have been very successful in their high school there is is one of our, uh, I think, greatest intentions right now, especially some of the young women. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Sister Hattie. You know, panelists, I... Um Rain calls an interesting article um, I'd like to just get some feedback from, and it directly relates to what's going on in our world. And it's an article with the title of it is Destroy Satan, Destroy Social Safety Net, and it was published on the 16th of October 2018. And it starts off by talking about lives hanging in balance, 21 days before midterm, McConnell amidst GOP still salivating to gut Medicare and Social Security. It says that Mitch McConnell wants to cut Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid to pay for Republican massive giveaways to the rich and large corporations, says Senator Bernie Sanders. Enough. Then it goes and says, Senator, um, it says, Senator Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. Republican of Kentucky talks to reporters after the Senate voted to confirm the Supreme Court Justice nominee. He said openly confirming that it has been the GOP plan all along to ramp through deficit exploding tax cuts for the rich and then gut critical safety net program to pay for the difference. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell on Tuesday falsely blamed American soaring deficit on entitlements. The scary word, the scary word Republican used in place of Medicaid, Medicare and Social Security and said these programs must be cut to bring federal spending under control. Now here he comes on saying the whole game is get rich the money and then take the money from the poor. And we know what kind of social consequences, economic consequences, political consequences it will have on the masses of the people here. So, panelists, what y'all make of, uh, of him opening saying this is this is the real game that's being played against the people? Brother Anthony, I think. Not, I go, Brother Anthony. No, Brother I was Anthony. saying I think he's taking advantage of the level of confusion 
that exists among people in the U.S. Uh, because he would uh, otherwise he wouldn't state that so openly that <clears throat> that the duopoly do, could care less about the masses of the people and only care about the rich and powerful. That's in essence is what he's saying. Because um, because there's some there are a lot of people that are heavily dependent upon Medicare and Social Security. Uh, you know, and uh, you know, we could, uh, in addition to quality of life, it could mean the difference between life and death in some cases. So this shows blatantly that uh, that, that 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 none of the parties, uh, you know, care about the mass of the people at all. They only care about those people that are able to contribute large sums to their political campaigns. You know, you know, one of, yeah, you know, one of the things, you know, I think we have to begin to understand that U.S. increasingly is becoming an oligarchy. You have few people with absolute control. In Central, we're talking about very, very wealthy people, the one percent um, um, that have, you know, you know, total control over the whole political process. Recently, there was a report by a Dr. Martin Gillins and a Dr. Benjamin Page, and it, it looked at 1,779 policy issues. What they found that of all those policy issues, uh, most of those policies uh, reflected favorably among toward the um, the elites and organized groups representing big business. And in other words, well, contra- well contrary to that, uh, one of the things it, it, it noted that when we talk about the kind of influence that average citizens or mass organizations have in terms of influencing, you know, political policy or economic policy, it has zero impact. So clearly we're talking about a relatively small number of wealthy people having total control over the political economic process. And if that's not bad enough, I think one of the things that people have to begin to understand about Brother Africa, when we talk about this kind of implicit corruption that exists in terms of capitalism, one of the things I think is very important that we, we note, that when we look at the, 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 federal, the federal deficit, right, we talk about the total deficit inside the United States, it went when, 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 when Face, the Orange Minutes, uh, imp, imp instituted his cuts, uh, that that deficit went from $66 billion, $666 billion to $779 billion after his tax cut. And this is according to the Treasury Department, who by no stretch of the imagination is a, is a liberal organization. Now, superimposed upon that was the Congressional Budget Office, which stated that of the $3.5 trillion that would have been available if those tax cuts wouldn't have went into effect, uh, despite that, Trump decided that he's going to implement those tax cuts, and as a consequence, what happened was that the government, in terms of revenues, brought in $202 billion less. Now, this is in addition to we're talking about, uh, we're talking about um, a, 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 a spending of $127 billion. So if the government spends $127 billion in terms of you know, everything it has to do in terms of you know, providing for the citizenry, then clearly uh, $3.5 trillion would be more than enough in terms of destroying or getting rid of that federal deficit. But the mere fact that when you talk about a small number of people who have absolute control of the political economic processes, then they're not concerned in terms of the, the injustice of it all. What they're concerned is that economic gain. And clearly they are, they're gaining the system. They're making tons and tons of money. And one of the things that they utilize in terms of keeping people away from the reality of what's going on is they continue to prop up racism. And so while people are busy you know, dealing with racism, 
uh, these people are silently stealing, stealing. I mean, uh, large and larger sums of money. And 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 I think also one of the things, Brother Africa, when we talk about, you know, when you talk about taking, you know, you know, reducing large and large sums of money from the going through the system, it does no the system no good whatsoever in terms of not having access to that money. Because if you're going to have a multiplier effect, if money goes to the system, it's going to increase, you know, uh, the money supply that much more. Then without that money going to the system, then the society, the system itself, economic system actually contracts. But even though it contracts, keep in mind that the people who who, who benefit, people who, who formulate these policies, the people behind your paying politicians to carry out these policies, are making tons and tons of money. But in terms of the overall function of the economic system. When you these large tax cuts, does nothing in terms of stimulating the economy. It does nothing in terms of making the economy expand. On the contrary, it makes the economy contract. Uh, and they understand that. But they don't care because the bottom line is all about the money. It's all about the money. It's not about the country. It's not about justice. It's not about equity. It's not about any of that stuff. It's all about power and money. And this is what we got to understand. So we're not surprised that Mitch McConnell, who is simply a figurehead for the powerful, will carry out their interests. And they've been, you know, for a long, long time, they have a, a desire to destroy Social Security, Medicaid, and Medicare. Now, one of the things politically, when you try to understand this kind of mindset, why would you want to destroy a program which is beneficial to over 50 million people in the country who pay by the rules of the game, who worked 40, 50, 60, 70 years, and now that they're enjoying the fruit of their labor, you're saying you want to get rid of it. Well, to some extent, you know, I can say what Sister Head is coming from. Sometimes you start thinking, damn, these people are just evil. You know, uh, but, you know, but, you know, so understanding the whole dynamics, the whole mindset behind why you want to destroy a system which so many people are, are dependent upon, uh, it boggles the mind. So I think that, you know, we, ha- we have to begin to understand that these people's interest is not necessarily our interest. And one of the things we got to do as a people, we have to fight racism. We have to understand that, you know, just pitting one against the other serves only interests of the powerful. And we got to stop falling for that trick. The Harry, do you say these people are just evil or just an evil system of capitalism? Oh, I think intrinsic evilness is, is definitely a base for their reactions and even the actions of greed and the systems that they set up. Um, and even the, um, I, I guess, the, 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 the camouflage of all of those things we just mentioned, the racism, the uh, discrimination to justice and all that Those are just smoke streams As far as I'm concerned Always have been And you know in terms of the article Yeah they're just evil Wicked Obnoxious Hateful And hate life You know you had an article about that I mean these people are are not about anything Because there is no common sense Because I mean How much money do you need And you know, what are you going to do after you get all the money, which you pretty much have already, after you've destroyed everything around the world? Then what? Um, there was a German billionaire who said it so clearly, okay, what you what, what he'd rather see is, uh, you know, the people doing well in the middle class and whatever because who's going to use their goods? And so clearly... The essential thing is not about them creating an economy where people and themselves are, you know, exchanging and claiming wealth. is clearly a something more sinister around enslavement and oppression of people. I mean, anybody with 
a half of a brain would know how wrong that is. Like you said, people work years and years and years and get to a point and you have the system and then you have these people that are, well, I wouldn't even call them people. I don't know what to call them at this point, to be honest with you. Going in and uh, trying to harm people because I don't know if you all know it, but the sad fact of the matter is Medicare, you have no choice but to use Medicare when you reach a certain age. You can't buy any insurance, health insurance, anywhere else, even if you have some money and you want to spend it on that. They will not sell you anything. There's only Medicare after 65. And so there, what what people are in, the quote used to be middle class people, you're either going to, if you get ill or something, you're going to go broke. Are you at their mercy in the Medicare system? And Medicare don't approve too much of anything unless it's like a knee replacement that costs $65,000, $70,000. And if you want to try uh, 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 some a natural kind of health products or systems, they won't pay for that. And so you have the medical community. They only pay for these certain things. And so what the elderly are doing and senior citizens are using up, you know, what little savings they had for health care still because Medicare don't pay for a whole bunch of stuff, even if you have a supplemental insurance policy. That's what I know about Medicare. And so the stuff is really already broken down and it's chipping away at that very fiber of the people that have, you know, have a little bit of, um, money and some systems that they have maybe in their retirement or 401ks and that kind of thing. So it's it's pretty bad already in terms of people and what they have to spend. And then you can't buy any insurance. You have to use Medicare. And I'm not talking Medicaid. I said Medicare. Just just can't do it. Can't can't buy it anywhere. It's bad so already. So much about freedom of choice. And this huh? man called uh, Ronald Reagan, you know, these people don't work like from the 5 and 10 and 20-year plan. We'll, we'll say you won't go 10. These people work from the 100-year plan. And if you look at it, it, it all started so much so long ago when Ronald Reagan went in and started chipping away at certain things. And they just keep taking it to another level, another level, another level. Well, you know, one of the things Thank I'm thinking you. since when you look at that particular two they call Social Security, I don't think they never really had an intention of creating a program for long term where working class and poor class of folks will be able to so called retire and still receive income while having so called work. I never believe it really intended for a poor man in the society to have um any kind of security. So I just think that they acting out what they have always wanted to be which is not to have any kind of social net for the working, working poor class of people. But anyway, let's move forward and see what Jabari has to say. Brother Jabari, what do you make of this um, opening uh, acknowledgement? Uh, let's get rid of these social net for the people here. We have to understand that capitalism is a continued state of balance, and one of the biggest forms of balance is to ensure that the people are in a position where they're without and they're subject to 
whatever crumbs that those um, who wield the influence want to give them. And clearly that's what this is indicative of. Because in order for capitalism to continue, the balance has to be at a high level. And clearly when you talk about decisions um, of that, you're talking about the systemic balance that comes with the nature of the beast that we're living under, unfortunately. Brother Africa, let me let me just let me just respond to something you raised earlier. Uh, you know, one of the things, you know, no, 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 they didn't want to to you know, institute, you know, social security. Uh, but one of the things FDR understood, that it just it just completed a period of the Gilded Age where you know fewer and fewer people had access to lots and lots of money. They realized that fewer and fewer people have lots and lots of money in their pockets. They had nothing in terms of overall revitalization or stimulation of the system. Economic system, and so therefore they had to create some means in terms of, you know, spreading the wealth to ensure that people have access to spending, which is predicated on uh, putting money first and foremost, first and foremost, in people's pockets so they can spend, and so therefore revitalize the economy. So all that was all that was because they wanted to find some, way, some kind of way to stimulate the economy, and we also talk about Keynesian um, principles in terms of economics. Uh, one of the things that when we talk about socialism, one of the things that you know is 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 a is ironic, but one of the things that can 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 save capitalism, if you will, is socialism. That's the thing that can save. I mean, one of the things that Barack Obama tried to do, he tried to spend, he tried to take two trillion dollars of of, you know, of spending, you know, targeted spending, you know, to revi- to create jobs for the sole purpose of revitalizing and stimulating the economy. Well, the Republican and some Democrats fought fought him against fought against him. And the kind of and eventually the kind of monies that they eventually allocated toward, you know, uh, creating jobs uh, wasn't enough in terms of really to stimulate the economy. Because one of the things they don't want people to realize is that socialism is not a bad thing. Socialism is a good thing. In fact, when you talk about the, the construction of roads, when you talk about the building of these these, these institutions, when you talk about uh, government investments abroad in terms of infrastructure. All of that stuff is, is predicated on socialism. It's government sharing of resources to these entities to ensure that they can get do whatever it is they, they're designed to do. So capitalism is not a bad thing. And when, so one of the reasons why they're trying to destroy Social Security right now, because people do have an inkling that they understand that socialism is the best thing for their life, not only in terms of stimulating the economy, but just in terms of overall health of, 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 or concerns of the masses of people in this, in this country, socialism is the way to go. But of course, they they are really concerned that because people get the message that they got to destroy any vestige of socialism, at least socialism as pertains to helping poor people. Socialism for rich people will always persist. They're gonna continue that. They're gonna always when you, when you talk about interest, you know, um, interest rates in terms of you transferring money from one group to another uh, to facilitate you know economic activity. What do you talk about? Um, what do you talk about accounting principles where? Uh, you have all these tax breaks for certain corporations, certain wealthy individuals to ensure money in their pocket. Of course, the money comes from other places. It doesn't come from, from economic activity per se, but it comes from the coffers that belong to the masses of people in society. So clearly socialism is something they're very, very afraid of. And so this, and so this notion that, uh, you know, that, that, that socialism revealed the, the, good, the, 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 the positive side and why socialism is so important it's something that they want to destroy. So once they get rid of the vestige of, 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 of socialism as related to Social Security, Medicaid, and Medicare, then they're pretty much where they want to be. In other, words, that, in other words, they have total control of the mass of people who feel they have no other recourse but to capitulate and to simply give in to the will of, you know, of, of, of the powerful. Okay. Brother Moses, your opinion. 
to screw in his safety net for the rank and file. Well, well ever since FDI implemented the social programs, uh, um, the ruling class, the profit-driven 1%, has been trying to dismantle that program. There's any social net, social security, Medicare, Medicaid, any program that's trying to help the masses of people, the, the ruling class wants to streamline the economy and get rid of government, uh, that that kind of government, and uh, have no regulations, no nothing to impede the profit-driven corporate system. And the, the profit-driven corporate system is, is, like I said, trying to streamline the economy, get rid of government regulations, so they can all out assault on 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 the population and just suck up every resource possible and exploit the working class and uh, you know this this Donald Donald Trump's tax tax cut to provide it for the rich and the and the wealthy and uh, at the at the expense of the poor and working class uh, as a, as a continuation of that process. And uh, he's trying to streamline the economy as well, and um, so, so it's no surprise now that they're going to come back. They're worried about the deficit all of a sudden, and uh, they need to cut Social Security and Medicare. And as said, uh, uh, it's just it's just a, a, a sham. Uh, uh, it's all political, and it's all directed at exploiting the working class. And getting rid of any programs that help the working class, uh, and uh, so just like they cut welfare during the Democrats and Republicans uh, all got together, and, and the welfare system that was in place, we had to get rid of that as much as possible, and uh, and it's a continuation of uh, assault on the social net programs. So that's what's going on. That's what's been going on, and that's what continues to go on unless we can organize. To stop them. Thank you. You know, panelists, one of the things we we're discussing, we we're actually discussing uh, the various tools of oppression, and to continue to look at this this this, um, this phenomenon. Um, one of the things uh, I'd like to just have some discussion on, because it ties into the whole nature of this program today, why we have revolutionaries or had revolutionaries such as Brother Kwame Ture and Brother uh, Nasser Garcia in Tupu. And I'm saying this in the context of, you know, many times, you know, we can look at the history of something, you understand the history of what, what it was in the past, it gives you a pretty good notion of what the present is. And when we talk about this, uh, and talk about this battle, or this war against immigrations come, people, immigrants coming here, and what have you, uh, I think at this time of year, particularly uh, upcoming, this so-called holiday that they call Thanksgiving, and this battle going on around immigration and who has the right to be here, let's just reflect a little bit about how the West was won, or in other words, how the West was stolen. When I say the West, I'm talking particular um, when the borders U.S. as well as in the Western Hemisphere. We know that when colonizers colonizers who came out of Europe came here, they used all kind of techniques and, and, and processes to try to eliminate the indigenous people who was here. That was an interesting video 
that was out talking about that. And I'd just like to get some of y'all thoughts on what had changed in terms of looking at the practices for how this comp- comp- how this country was opened up by the European explorers from the east always to the west. And how has anything changed today, panelists? Brother Anthony, you want to take a stab at that first? Yes. Um, I uh, When I saw the vi- video, it reminded me of uh some of uh some of the other colonization attempts around the world uh that's a similar pattern first they that they, they uh they 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 exploit the labor of the indigenous people they work them to death if they don't if they're not physically productive they kill them uh they uh that they they attack their culture their way of life uh, let's see. They tried to uh, they tried to destroy that culture by assimilating them into um, a, a, you know into the European culture, and uh, and it was very rem- reminiscent to me of how they that they've tried to colonize uh, areas such as Australia, um, Zania, South Africa, and other places. And uh, and one of the most uh, vicious, uh, insidious attempts were w- w- was the way in which they wiped out the buffalo, and also uh, you know uh, separated uh, children and women, and how they forcibly sterif- sterilized women without you know without their knowledge. And uh, that's a similar method of control they used on the African population in the U.S. And so, uh, you know, so I think that it was a, it was an eye opener in terms of it. Re- it reminded me of uh, the various techniques of colonization that were used. Uh, of course, I think the difference is because. Uh, the north, the west, uh, the western hemisphere is largely dominated by Europeans. You don't see all those methods used today, but the containment, in terms of using reservations to contain people, and try to uh, attack the culture, is still continuing. You're right, brother. Some of reservations, others they call projects. Brother Hackey, what's your take from that particular video, how the West was stolen? Uh, Brother Africa, I didn't get an opportunity to uh, to view that video, but listening to uh, Anthony, you know, uh, one thing is clear. Uh, the, the history is, is always been very consistent. Um, anytime um, Western invaders come to new land, it's always demonized, dehumanized, exploit, and ultimately to kill. So that kind of uh, pattern has been persistent throughout the ages, and that hasn't changed at all. It's, it's now that the whole process in terms of dehumanization, demonizing, and killing people is much more intricate, much more complex. Uh, they can do it now, and, and there's a certain amount of plausible deniability in which they can say, well, uh, you know, you, you, I mean, you died off because, well, you know, you didn't have what it takes. You didn't do well in school, and so therefore your inability to have access to food is your own fault. It's not our fault. It's your fault. 
um, you know, they could even say that something like, like well, the, the resources of the resources of the of the of the world, the resources of the planet, belong to a small segment of humanity, at the exclusion of the majority of humanity, and that's okay. And so, in a, in the course of that kind of imbalance, then we can certainly can anticipate a large number of people, you know, who without who have who, without, we can anticipate them, you know, stress being stressed and ultimately dying off, if not if not earlier, uh, than later. Also, uh, I, I think that this whole practice in terms of this mindset, in fact, is somehow that the West perceive themselves as unique. I think as long as that mindset exists, uh, I think that we can anticipate that this kind of similar kind of behavior will persist. I think that until they come to realize that it's just simply part of humanity and not a distinct from humanity, uh, I think this kind of thing is going to, um, going to persist. And the one thing I liked about well, Brother Fidel Castro is that he talked about the fact that the African blood flows through my veins. And if you could only get a Mer- white politician in America to say African blood flows through my veins, if you get them even to acknowledge that, then you'd be uh, a, big, a big step forward in terms of, you know, le- eliminating, you know, racism. But I think that as long as, you know, they, the perception is that they're somehow exceptional, or they're special, or they're distinct, I think you would anticipate more of the same. I don't think that's going to go change when I order. Brother Jabari, Moses, you had a chance to reflect on this whole question of how the West would take it? You know, there was a very interesting portion of the presentation where they were talking about how despite the indigenous having sovereignty rights, notice they said that the use the phrase the um the discovery overtakes any kind of sovereignty rights. You know, that's a narrative we continue to see. So we often hear the rhetoric of 45 in regards to how he wants to. Can you hear me? Yes, yes, we can. Yes, yes you hear we the can. rhetoric of 40. You can hear the rhetoric about 45 about how he wants to keep certain people from immigrating to the U.S. But yet, when the U.S. and all of its um, forces um, do forced immigrations on other people, did not ask them to come there. He has no problem with it, longer as they can accumulate their particular areas resources and dominate industry. Because we gotta understand that in terms of the plight of the indigenous the story we continue to see. We've seen the indigenous here. We know about what happened with Hawaii and Puerto Rico it's the same narrative. So that's what people understand. That they've come up with a formula that they continue to rehearse all over the world. So it's not something that's isolated. It's connected to the things we still see today in terms of trying to keep neocolonialism as um, what should be the norm, unfortunately. Brother Moses, Sister Hannah, response to the video, if any. Well, I think the brother said it so well. It's really the same play wherever they go, wherever they are. It's to dehumanize, like everyone else said. I just, I'm just making. Repeating it, nothing else. Oppression, destroy the people's culture, kill, steal, and destroy, rape their land. Um, wherever they are, it's it's their their formula is always the same. Always, it's not changed. Um, or go in and cause confusion and tell a bunch of lies and figure out how they can 
put together something that will um, will cause a civil war and the country implode upon the people, or they go there and just start a war themselves, like, you know, things they did in the Middle East. So it's it's just the same formula and the same play if you're in a ball game. They keep running that same play, and it works for them. Because I think people are just so shocked and so um, aghast at them by the time they do what they do um, to rap. So, same thing. Thank you. Can I add something to that? Uh, yes, Brother Yes. Um, bear in mind that 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 the so-called American Indian or uh, or or the indigenous people of Western Hemisphere, they had never they had never encountered Europeans until until they uh, started coming to the Western Hemisphere in the late fifteenth uh, century, and when they came, and uh, this is the thing that's, uh, that that. Uh, that shot me. The Europeans that came under the leadership of Columbus, they took advantage of their weapons, of their of their technological superiority, superiority to subdue and oppress, and ruthlessly, um, you know, uh, almost uh, decimate the Taino and the Arawak in the uh, Caribbean. Which is why you know there aren't that there are hardly any indigenous people in the Caribbean uh, today because of that, and um, you know, and just the methods they used, uh, uh, you know, uh, work, uh, you know, the the forced labor, uh, the attack on the culture, the, the decimation of the buffalo population. Which made the, uh, uh, the 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 indigenous people totally dependent upon the U.S. government, uh, you know, for food, and that's why they were reduced to a state of dependency. So I think uh, there are a lot of lessons that Africans can learn from understanding uh, the true story of uh, the, the American Indian. And also some lessons we could that could be useful for our fire struggle. And I think it's appropriate that, uh, that 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 we that we deal with this subject because uh, a lot of people are getting ready to celebrate uh, this uh, conquest uh, this Thursday. Unwitt- unwittingly, but uh, nevertheless, that's what is celebrating. The fact that the that that the Europeans were able to steal somebody else's land and uh, claim it for their own. You know, one of the things I think is that you know um, you know competition doesn't necessarily mean the destruction of of a people. Uh, you can have competition and be competitive, without necessarily destroying you know humanity. Uh, but I think it's a very difficult thing for a lot in the West to to, to comprehend. I think for I think for Western mindset, particularly when you talk about people like Votar and you talk about people like, you know, um, oh, I can't think of this guy's name. But anyway, 
when you talk about a lot of the leading Western philosophers, this notion in terms of power at all costs is such a prevailing theme. I think this notion that killing off people in order to get what you want is just a natural kind of thing. And it sort of gets reinforced because a lot of times you talk to, you know, psychologists and they tell you that, well, given the the the, 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 the overall imperative for human beings to, 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 to survive, that they, they want to eliminate competition. Well, it's, it's, for me, I'm telling you, it's problematic for, for me to even, to even agree with that, even understand it, really. Because when you look at the history in terms of Africa, in terms of how people interact with the other, you had different tribes, different cultural groups, uh, and there was competition among the groups. But they created ingenious ways in terms of, you know, dealing with that conflict, which avoided the kind of uh, destruction that is so reminiscent of the West. Uh, for instance, when you talk about Somalia, when you talk about warfare, they talk about when they competed, when they fought, they did like the rappers did. Which actually what the rappers got from the Africans was this whole notion in terms of poetry. You get together and you sit there and you, and you compete with another in terms of verses. And the better person with the better verses wins. You know, uh, nobody's dead, nobody gets hurt, nobody's humiliated. I mean, you know, so, so it seems to me this notion in terms of the Western minds, I would say, is that uh, competition is synonymous with destruction. I think it's something that the Western, Western, Westerners have to start dealing with. They have to start looking at their history and say, why do I continue to do this? Why, why is it that I'm, why am I so destructive? Why am I comfortable with destroying? Uh, you know, and, 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 and as a consequence, they end up feeding societies which, which in themselves are very destructive. And never understanding why such destructiveness exists. It's, it's, it's part and parcel in terms of the whole Western mindset in terms of, you know, the, uh, the necessity or, 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 the, or the need, as they see it, of destruction. So, I, I, you know, it's, it's a very, it's a, it gets very, very deep. So this is one of the things I can't dismiss uh, the sister, um, um, uh, uh, Dr. Cress, Dr. Cress Weldon. I can't simply dismiss what she has to say because on a subconscious level or on an unconscious level, you've got to look at in terms of what, how people behave in terms of the implications of what they do. It's not what they say, it's what they do. And so when I look at in terms of this, 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 this very barbaric behavior, or this propensity in terms of destruction, and, and, and when people say it's justified and right, I shake my head because I don't understand it. Uh, so I, I think that Westerners themselves have come to some realization that you know, maybe there's a different way in terms of seeing the world, and that the perception that you feel is the right perception Maybe it's not the right right perception. That in fact that it comes from another place. That in fact maybe this this, this, this your unconscious motivation is maybe the result of not feeling good about who you are. Maybe that got to do with all your destructiveness. You know, but we need to have that discussion. And I uh, and you know, it's not to be to facilitate racism or prop up racism, but to ask the question, what the hell is going on here? Why is there clearly a philosophical disconnect between the East and the West in terms of the in terms of how they view violence? So, um, so you know, so maybe someone can call in and they can clarify, because my position is that you know, um, I think it's problematic when it comes to Western society. So, that's my view, and I close with that. Okay, to close out the segment, we get Brother Moses to find a thought. Your thoughts, Brother Moses? Yeah. Yeah. This this Eurocentric historical perspective of a white power, basically, uh, uh, meaning that until the European Sees it, 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 it hasn't been discovered. It doesn't. It's it's, it's not part of the world. Uh, 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 so you know they come to the U.S. and they just discover the 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 U.S. and uh, and uh, and uh, they take land from the Native Americans and they create treaties with the Native Americans. They constantly break them. Uh, 
it's a conquest, a conquest and conquest, and uh, ever expanding and expanding uh, westward, taking land and and uh, breaking more treaties and taking land and breaking more treaties and never in this struggle uh, to eliminate the indigenous people. And uh, this is what has gone on in terms of the, how the West was taken, uh, 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 you know, the superiority of the weaponry obviously helped uh, the techno- technological bullets and guns, etc. Uh, but, you know, you have to have a, a, a profit-driven, uh, selfish, chauvinistic view of the world in order to continue this this uh this imperialism, uh, uh, and that's what has gone on, and that's what continues to go on, on uh, just as, as surely as they've taken land from the Palestinians, and etc. Uh, um. Okay, on that note, uh, panelists, we're going to end the segment. What's going on in your world and community? And when we come back, we're going to make a transition to the theme tonight, which is in remembering Brother Kwame Ture and Brother Ntubo. We're going to discuss these two revolutionaries. And again, we'd like to have the audience to join in with us as we give our tribute to these two revolutionaries who have came and made their contribution to humanity. So we're going to pause for this cause, and when we come back, we will do our major theme tonight on remembering Brother Kwame Ture and our Brother Nasser Garcia and Tubu. We'll be right back. This is Africa on the Moon. Yo 
So don't you where you come from As long as you're a black man You're an African No mind denomination That is only segregation You're an African So don't you where you come from As long as you're a black man You're an African Trubu, 
We also, on behalf of the African Wedding Association, in support of Africa on the Move, we send a statement to his family and the rest of the world in terms of recognizing this great individual. Brother Haki, would you like to share the statement with the listening world? Sure. A farewell to Brother Professor Master Garcia Etube. African Wedding Association the deepest regrets on learning of the transition of Professor Master Garcia Etube. On Saturday, November 10th, 2018, at the age of 78, Dr. Tube's accomplishments are many, but the intrinsic meaning of his life goes much deeper than intellectual prowess and acumen that accomplished such pursuits. The greatest accomplishments of his life were steadfastness and clarity of purpose, which propelled him to impart information that was both enlightening and penetrating, helping others to confront truths not necessarily palatable. Such a commitment to ideas underscores not just a passion for clarity, but the reevaluation of a paradigm counter to conventional polity which justified a familiar existence predicated on rudimented thoughts facilitated by systems that serve only some elements in society. Dr. Turbay is the environment of struggle and prerequisite of standing tall against a malefactor committed to the subjugation of humanity and the increase of global misery by any means. Confronting such a calculated adversary is no easy feat, that to undertake such an endeavor presupposes one has a backbone. Dr. Tubal, we postulate, had a spine of immense proportions. Never confused with having a gusonal disposition or worm disposition, he understood true freedom comes from standing up, not acquiescence in a manner where civilism is seen as a viable strategy. If posterity is to serve humanity in the future, it is clear that the shining example established by him will serve humanity well into the future and serve as a great example for humanity. Humanity owes him a great debt. The name Nestor Garcia Atube will resonate forever more, and humanity will be more the better off. Long live the spirit of this great man. In conclusion, we send our thoughts and prayers to Dr. Tube's family. He left us examples in which freedom fighters can inspire and the love he demonstrated toward humanity. Nestor Garcia Atube will be forever embedded in the shrine of freedom-loving people and the sacrifices made toward a better world. African Awareness Association. Yeah, on behalf of African Awareness Association, African Move, again, we send our condolences to his family. Um, you know, one of the things you know, I would like to make a a statement terms of I have been very fortunate to meet the brother several times and be in his presence for various lectures uh, as we visit Cuba from time to time. And one of the things I can say about uh, my limited interaction with him is that as a person, as a human being, he was very um, honest, he was very articulate, in terms of how you present this information. But you also had a sense of humor that you could never forget. You know, a lot of times people like to talk about Cuba and say Cubans don't have humor, but that's not true. You're very humorous, but you were very well thought of. And I think he was a good uh, product of what the Cuban society has produced when you talk about human development. And, you know, when you think about people like him, you know, he is a good model for... For, for 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 Cuban society, he's an excellent model, and we enjoy the various articles that he periodically send out, and we like to thank him, you know, also as an ally of Africa on the Move, for supporting the various programs and work that we continue to try to do. He most definitely will be missed, but most definitely, is one that the world needs to learn about and come to appreciate his works. So that just run a small tribute to my knowledge and to our 
my dear brother, and we so we're going to miss him. Anyone else would like to make a statement in regard to brother in Tube? Yeah, d- brother, um, brother uh, Tube. Uh, yeah, the thing that struck me too about Africa is the fact that he has a sense of humor. I mean, he was very, very funny, and when, when, he, when he talked about in terms of people's understanding or lack of understanding in terms of what goes on in the context of American society, he was very clear in terms of what goes on in American society. I mean, he made jokes about the fact and talked about the cost of living in terms of being able to afford apartments. And, uh, you know, so he said many of them that he had to, in America, he had to sacrifice, you know, and change you know, just, just a meal simply because the, the cost of living was just so expensive. And the poor people out there, you know, who was struggling on a daily basis, you know, he said, this is not for me. He said, I can't wait to get back to Cuba. So, you know, he was, he was a funny guy. And he, he was very knowledgeable, and uh, he really cared about humanity. And so one of the things that you, you definitely admire about people, you know, who are committed to struggle is that you have a sense of, uh, of uh, humanity, you know, or a sense of um, you've you got to be humorous. I mean, you really have to be because sometimes, you know, you know this stuff becomes very, very serious. And, and you see things which you're all too aware of. You understand the implications of you know certain conditions that you're that you're looking at, and it wears on you. So to be humorous is is, is a gift. Um, to be able to to laugh at the darker side of life because it's the thing that sustains you. And Dr. Tube possessed all of that. So he was a he was a, he was a dynamic individual. He's a good man, and he definitely would be missed. And uh, you know, um, so you know, so if I get the opportunity next time I get to Cuba, I make sure I stop by you know his family house, you know, to pay my respects. Because he was a very dynamic and very uh, principled human being. Okay. On that note, um, what we're going to do is we're going to play this song in honor of our brother, because he typifies the example of in order for a people to be free, they got to get up and stand up for their rights. And he definitely did it, not only for the Cuban Revolution. For all of humanity. So, the honor to our brother in Tuba, we salute you with this song in remembrance. Yeah. 
Oh, African People Revolutionary Party, Brother um, Anthony. Well, certainly. Um, I met Brother Kwame uh, when I was a student at Howard University uh, back in, uh, around uh, ni- 1983. Um, it was around uh, March, April of 83, and I had uh, honor and privilege of working with him for 15 years. Um thing I remember most is um, is his enthusiasm, his humbleness, and also his dedication to principle. Uh, he was a very principled uh, uh, man. Uh, let's see, and uh, one of uh, the things that, uh, that struck me was how steadfast he was in terms of his attention to detail and that he was a very caring, uh, very caring person. And, um, you know, he made time, you know, to interact with the people, uh, no matter how busy he was, he always, uh, had time to interact with people, uh, whether that you know, regardless of uh, you know their celebrity status and what have you. Uh, let's see. Uh, one of the things that um, he, Shirley um, uh, Graham Du Bois, introduced Kwame to Kwame Nkrumah and Secretary in Guinea uh, around 1968. Uh, she also introduced him to his first wife, Miriam Makeba. And um, he uh, settled in Guinea and decided and and dedicated uh, the rest of his life to the achievement of Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific uh, socialism. Uh, one of the things that people don't understand that this was a growth, an enlargement of uh, his struggle. For black power And uh, throughout his life He had always belonged To some uh, Organization or another And he put a great Deal of emphasis on the importance Of being organized These are some of the things I take from my work With uh, Kwame And uh, He also Introduced people to uh, Us to other people's struggles such as the Irish and the uh, American Indian. So uh, these are some of the lessons I take from my experience from working with Brother Kwame. And just add to that point, Brother Anthony, I know also often um, saw him uh, being in solidarity with the Palestinian movement as well. There were many movements, but I know also he carried a half flag with the Palestinian struggle, and as well as with Cuba. Certainly. Yeah. Right, let's go to Brother Hackey. Brother Hackey, how will you remember Brother Kwame, and what lessons have you learned from his his works? Yeah, I uh, I met Brother Kwame in Harlem and Richmond. Uh, you know, um, you know, and not to be redundant, uh, you know, uh, you know, I think one of the things that impressed me. Most about Kwame was the fact that he was he was you know he was sure uh, he was convinced one hundred percent 
that the African people will be liberated. Uh, to that, he had no doubt whatsoever. And it reflected in terms of the kind of things he said, the kind of things that he did. Uh, you know, it was a very difficult life in terms of, you know, revolutionary, uh, you know, but uh, he was truly committed. In the sense that he was principled, yeah, he was beyond being principled. Uh, he was he was just a he just was he was an icon. I mean, he was uh, I mean, he he was a he was a fantastic person in terms of, you know, you know, moving this movement forward. And so, therefore, you know, his his skills in terms of organization were superb. Uh, his uh, his understanding in terms of uh, human behavior uh, was extraordinary. And I, I think that it all manifests itself when he was in front of crowds in terms of. His delivery, uh, the way he would, um, you know, um, he would talk to people individually. Uh, so clearly, you know, uh, he was very, very special, and, and it was a great loss when when, when Kwame transitioned. Uh, but definitely, he left a a, a, a very um, sobering um, uh, uh, example in terms of what could be. And so, therefore, I always remember in terms of persistence, his tenacity, uh, his, his 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 optimism in terms of you know a better world. So those things I take with me, and I'll be ever grateful for Kwame Ture. Thank you, Brother Hackey. Brother Jabari, how do you remember Brother Kwame Ture? What lesson did you learn from his well, contribution? I never had the opportunity to personally meet him. I will say that in regards to his legacy, he definitely um, gave good nuggets of wisdom to help set a blueprint for any person who wants to have true liberation. And you have to acknowledge that he was a man of principle because once he relocated to Africa, you notice what he did? He did what many said they would do, but few actually are bold enough to do, and that is to go back home and settle there and not to return to the place uh, where he knows there's so much hostility, there's so much chaos. He went to a place where he could find peace, and with his transition, he was in the place where he could be celebrated and appreciated for the stances he took because, as we know, anytime you're in a Western society, unfortunately, when you're a person of conscience, you'll never fully get um, your just due. Um, thanks, Brian. We're going to take this caller right now, and we'll come back with the rest of our panelists. We're going to take this caller, caller 5827. I believe we have Brother Kamal on the line. Brother Kamal? What happened yes, to Africa yes. Brother, Brother Kamal, we're doing a Re- tribute in, in remembering to Brother Kwame Ture. This is his 20th year transition, and we know that you had the opportunity to work with him for many years, and you also work with his organization. We'd like to give uh, a perspective from, from, from you on what it meant to be able to work with him, what legacy has he left from you, and just share some things from your perspective. Oh, yes. I'd like to say greetings to you, my brother, Lee, uh, and all Africans that are listening, and all of your other listeners. Um, I I, uh, agree and I'm humble because I had the opportunity to work with the brother, and for the last 10 years, of his life before he went back to Africa, before he transitioned, he stayed with me in Washington, D.C. Uh, so I had the opportunity to talk and travel and work with the brother on many occasions. But I would like to say uh, to you and to all, and the uh, Kwame Tewari was a 
fearless, tireless, and relentless African revolutionary freedom fighter and his ever-encompassing struggle for the total liberation and unification of Africa and African people under scientific socialism. Um, he struggled to build the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, which I was fortunate to be a part of and still is uh, a part of the All-African People's Revolutionary Party. Um, and um, he struggled to unify Africans throughout Africa and the diaspora, from the cotton fields of Alabama and Mississippi in his struggle to organize voter registration drives and implement civil and human rights for African people in these United States in the 1960s uh, to his denunciation of the racist and humane Vietnam War of the 60s, 70s. He attacked Zionism and struggled to gain Palestinian rights for Palestinian people and to liberate Palestine. Um, we marched on many occasions with the brother uh, and organized, of course, work-study circles. Quamitary uh, struggled for justice and peace against injustice everywhere. He struggled against imperialism, colonialism, neocolonialism, capitalism, everywhere. He, like Malcolm, said that this democracy in the United States is a sham, and we are victims of this democracy. And as I said, uh, I'm fortunate and humble to have, uh, with, to have been in this brother's company and have struggled and marched with him for many years before in his transition. And as many of you said, uh, he surely will be missed. But we still carry the banner, and we're still struggling to organize our people and fight against injustice everywhere. I thank you. We thank you, Brother Kamal. You're welcome to hold on as we continue to discuss his life and work. We're going to go back now to our other panelists, Brother Moses. How will you remember the life and works of Brother Kwame Ture and his impact on our people? Brother Moses? Yes. Yes. Let me say, uh, first off, that I, I never I had the pleasure of meeting Brother Kwame. Uh, I do I understand some of the struggles and, and history of his life, and uh, I'm very impressed with, 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 with what he's, he's able to accomplish throughout his life uh, from the SNCC years to to definitely the anti uh, uh, Zionist movement. Uh, he was one of the first of the, of the so-called civil rights leaders uh, to to come out and 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 support the Palestinian people. Uh, I think one of his greatest. He came out against the Vietnam War early. Uh, he he. He also organized necessity as the mother of invention, and they, he saw the necessity of getting a black united front together, and he was able to organize uh, the NAACP, the Nation of Islam, and Urban League, different groups into, into, a, into an organization that would communicate, and uh, that was good. Uh, uh, he, he definitely had an impact on 
on on the struggle for liberation of black people and he will be surely missed. He is missed and uh and uh I thank you for allowing me to get my two cents in. Thank you. All right, let's go to Sister Hattie. Sister Hattie, how you remember? How will you remember the life and work of Brother Kwame Ture? Okay, I will remember the yeah, I will remember the life and works of uh, Brother Kwame Ture with uh, from the readings and all of the historic things that happened during his time were phenomenal, and uh, I just say the sacrifice is what I remember of his time of himself for his people is is what is so great and I'll be very honest with the those of panelists on this show, really, uh you all are the spirit of Kwame Ture. So he lives and so many of you. Thank you. You know, as we continue to do the show, we're going to go back and forth from different lessons and Statements that Kwame um, left for us to 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 live by. Right now, what I want to do for the next five to ten minutes or so, you know, he was often um, uh, making statements or being quoted with the quote that there's a higher law than the law of government, and then and that's the law of consciousness. You always talk about the rule of consciousness. Let's go a little bit down memory lane and let's do Kwame to read for a little while as he discussed this whole question about the conscious versus the unconscious. And then when we come back, we'll like for y'all respond to this. ...of this brother, and he's still blazing a trail, evil to them. So he has an eternal flame. His flame don't burn out. Some of y'all flames burn out. His flame is still strong. Let us all get on our feet, please. And let's give a warm round of applause to a great hero, all the way from Guinea, all the way from the mother country. Our brother, our friend, Brother Kwame Ture. Brother Kwame Ture, as he comes down. Let's give it up as he comes down the aisle. Brother Kwame Ture, this is a historic occasion for us to bring our brother back again to the slave theater. Let's give a warm round of applause to our brother. Brother Kwame Ture, who's been on the firing line, who shook up America in 1966, when he hollered, Black Power! 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 Black power, 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 black power. What time is it? What time is it? What time is it? What time is it? All right, brother, come to Ray. Let's give it up, Brother Kwame Ture.
Thank you for your warm welcome. You must excuse us for uh, sitting, but we have uh, some pain in our legs. <coughs> and uh, we're trying as much as possible to stay off of it while we're doing some tests with the uh, doctors. Of course, the All-African People's Revolutionary Party is always happy to be with the United African Movement. Uh, the All-African People's Revolutionary Party is always happy to be the United African Movement. And uh, there are three members of uh, three other members of our central committee who are present. Uh, Brother Ron Gibbs is here, no? Brother Ron Gibbs is here, yes. Sister Mawina Kuyate, who's also the head of the All African Women's Revolutionary Union. And of course, we're always proud of our living history. Uh, this brother who was uh, come through many struggles was the chair of the Black Panther Party in New York during the rough times and since joined the All-African People's Revolutionary Party. I've had the honor of working with him for almost 30 years, a member of our Central Committee, the youngest member, David Brothers. <laughs> Thank you. Uh -huh. Of course, we are always uh, honored to be with the uh, United African Movement because the world is divided into many, many different categories. But one of the categories which interests those of us who are concerned with advancing humanity the most is that between the conscious and the unconscious. This uh, division between the conscious and the unconscious must be properly understood. The people instinctively love freedom, and they will instinctively fight for freedom. But you cannot win freedom on instincts. You can only win freedom on reason. Therefore, the unconscious are those who react on instinct. The conscious are those who react on reason. The job of the conscious is to make the unconscious conscious. Let us make a simple example. I think it was in 1992, after one more brutal beatings too many, the African population in Los Angeles, California revolted, rose up in righteous rebellion. This was instinctively revolutionary. Instinctively in the sense that it wasn't planned. Instinctive in the sense that it was this reaction to brutality. And this instinctive revolutionary act was very costly to American capitalism. It even had to bring in the American army 
very costly. But since it was on instinct, it had no reason, nothing to direct it, it would spin itself out. Those who participated in it were largely unconscious. We must come to understand that the overwhelming majority of our people are unconscious. But just because they're unconscious, you shouldn't think they don't want freedom. As a matter of fact, sometimes the unconscious is quicker willing to give their lives in struggle than the conscious. These are simple facts. Would you imagine what it would be like when we are conscious rebellious, when we consciously organize to rebel in Los Angeles with reason? I mean making supply lines, making sure armaments are there, having hospital aids, having fire brigades, just like they do even in Ireland. Nothing big, just a little planning. Just a little planning. This is what we want to speak to you about this evening. Making the unconscious conscious. Now we must say from the very beginning, the only, underline the word only, the only route to consciousness is through struggle. Now, for example, we've shown you the unconscious struggle. Those who rose up in righteous rebellion against the state police in Los Angeles, they were, they were consciously involved in struggle. They were involved in struggle, unconscious, but involved in struggle. The conscious must understand precisely what their task is, and we've said this two years ago here, we repeat it. Ours is not to teach the people to be conscious, but to make them conscious of their unconscious behavior. Our task is not to teach the conscious to be, to teach the unconscious to be conscious, but to make them conscious of their unconscious behavior. Because unconsciously, instinctively, they seek freedom. What we must do is make them conscious, look, you want freedom anyway, let's be serious, let's sit down, let's plan it, let's wait protracted war, and let's tear down the system and walk on to liberation. It's as simple as that. This aspect of the unconscious becoming conscious is linked to mobilization and organization, something we mentioned last year. We must make clear distinctions between mobilizers and organizers. To be an organizer, you must be a mobilizer, but being a mobilizer doesn't make you an organizer. Much confusion is to be found here. Malcolm X was a great mobilizer. He was a great organizer. Martin Luther King was a great mobilizer. He was not a great organizer. These facts can be easily seen from King and Malcolm. When Malcolm went to a place, he left a mosque. When King went to demonstrations, he broke down desegregation and he moved on. As a matter of fact, King was not concerned with organization to the point that even though he was the most popular Baptist preacher in America without the shadow of a doubt and probably beyond the shadow of a doubt the most loved he could not become president of the Baptist National Baptist Association Convention yeah so many of them the National Baptist Convention <laughs> as a matter of fact if my memory serves me correctly now and I remember it was Mohammed Speaks that uh, carried the article on the front page in 1964 
when King tried to become president of the National Baptist Convention, there was so much confusion there that a minister was actually put, pushed off the stage and died in the trouble. Yeah. And of course, King lost. The man who won was a reactionary man by the name of Jackson. He never did nothing for the people, never cared about the people, just was a pork chop minister who used their money to put gas in his big Cadillac. But he was organized. But he was organized. We say that we must come to know the difference between mobilization and organization because the enemy will use mobilization to demobilize us. Mobilization is very easy. Very, very easy. Because since we're people who are instinctively ready to respond against acts of injustice, anytime there's one little act of injustice, we can blow it up and we'll find people who come and make some mass demonstration around it. Miss Sally lost a job. Let's rally. She will get a job back. People will come and rally. So-and-so got kicked out of school because the teacher's unjust. The unjust, the people will come and rally. They will come to rally at issues. And this is what mobilization does. It mobilizes people around issues. Those of us who are revolutionary are not concerned with issues. We're concerned with the system. The difference must be properly understood. The difference must be properly understood. Mobilization usually leads for reform action, not to revolutionary action. If we would look scientifically at the October 16th million and more march, we would see clearly that this was a mobilized event, not an organized event. We must know clearly the difference between mobilization and organization. One of the characteristics of mobilization is that it is temporary. Organization is permanent and eternal. Clear differences must be made because the unconscious can usually be captured easily around one issue items, around mobilization items, but it's hard to catch them around organization. But these unconscious must be brought to organization. We must transform mobilization to organization. We say the enemy will come and use mobilization to demobilize us. Many brothers and sisters who've been to the Million and More March will say to you, I was there. Well, what are you doing today, my sister? I was there. There weren't too many sisters out there, but you know, with a million brothers together, you know where I had to be. I was there. <laughs> and then, of course, you find brothers, yeah, I was there. I was there. I helped you. What are you doing today, brother? If we're not careful, we allow mobilization to become events. The struggle is never an event. It's a process, a continual, eternal process. We say it is our job to use mobilization to drive us to organization. You know our theme is organization. We want power. We don't want money. We don't want fame. We don't want fortune. We don't want popularity. We want power. Power. And power comes only from the organized masses. Power comes only from the organized masses. We repeat, power comes only from the organized masses. We'd like to welcome you back to Africa on the Move. We are doing a tribute to in remembrance of our brother Kwame Ture. As we remember the 20th anniversary of his transition 
We ask our callers to call in who would like to speak to the album memory of Brother Kwame Kareem's legacy. And we will continue to have discussion. Now, you just listened to a segment on Brother Kwame Kareem that we're dealing with the conscious versus the unconscious. Panelists, guests, I'd like to get y'all to respond to it before I do that. We have a caller we'd like to bring in. We'd like to get his perspective on the life of Brother Kwame Ture and its impact on our people today. Mm-hmm. Call us 
the struggle of the Africans outside of Africa, the African diaspora. I think he also saw clearly the need to reach out to, and he did, Brother Kwame Nkrumah, the first president of Ghana, a premier Pan-Africanist, and to President Ahmed Sekoure, the first president of Guinea, where he spent the rest of his life and died and is buried currently today. I, I think that, yeah, Kwame's Toure impact is extremely important, but it is something that is voluminous, that it would take a while to study, to understand, but in the meantime, it's also very simple. It's understanding that we as Africans lack power. The way for us to get power is through organization. That if we're organized, we have to look at which land we can justly claim. And he was the first to say, this land, America, as a matter of fact, this hemisphere, America, belongs to the indigenous man. Our land is Africa. He was clear that if we united Africa, that we, if we had a United States of Africa today, the African person, the African man, woman, and child, no matter where they were in the world, would be in a total different, progressive, and better situation. And so he laid it out. He said, we must struggle for a United States of Africa. And this United States of Africa cannot be a capitalist United States of Africa. It must be a United States of Africa under scientific socialism. He said that. So here again, I think that when we look at Kwame, we must look at Kwame the whole man and see his contributions in terms of how we progress forward, what we can do, and how we develop our continent, our resources, and our people so that no matter where we are in the world, we will benefit. And again, my brother, thank you very much for hosting this program today and for honoring Kwame Ture. Kwame Ture was my roommate for a number of years in the D.C. area, and I have to thank you for doing this. Thank you, my brother, from my heart. Forward. Yes, thank you, brother. We thank you for your contribution to today's program, and you're always welcome to stay on, and we'll continue the discussion. Let's go to Brother Hockey. Brother Hockey, we just heard a segment where Kwame Ture was speaking on his conscience versus unconscious. And he made a, some really interesting um, points. And one of the points I'd like to get you to speak to is the question of, he talked about we can't make our struggle be based upon instincts, but we must respond and act out of reasons. And he said the only route to consciousness is through struggle. Um, your response to these particular points, this question of instincts versus reasons, and the only way to make one conscious is through struggle. 
Yeah, I agree. I agree. I, I, in, in, you know, in, in, in order to understand the situation with clarity, um, although history doesn't hurt at all in terms of one's understanding, uh, one of the things when we talk about unconscious individuals and we talk about, you know, Kwame talks about instinctive need to be, you know, be free, which is true. But the problem is that, you know, conscious, un, I mean, the unconscious understanding in terms of what's going on is, is very limiting in terms of the application. Because if situations change without lack of understanding, then you really don't have any way in terms of, you know, um, using use the information that you receive and making sense of it to form a strategy or tactic in terms of moving forward. So a certain amount of consciousness is needed in terms of, you know, current for a movement. Uh, the thing is that I think also we have to understand is that when we when we talk about, you know, making the, the unconscious conscious, one of the things that we've got to keep in mind it is a process. In addition to the whole factor around the question in terms of history, in terms of facilitating this mindset in terms of consciousness, we help us to understand, you know, that uh, those people who, who are unconscious um, are helping people on a daily basis with propaganda, which 365 days a year are constantly telling them to work against their own self-interest. So you're dealing with a lot in terms of bringing people up to the consciousness and to the extent that they understand fully what, what, what in fact, was happening. Uh, and so, but I think the only way people can fully appreciate what's really happening in life is that, to some extent, it's going to call for some type of experiences what will happen over and over and over again. I think where the conscious come in is that when, when these spirits keep happening to people over and over and over again, if those among us who are, who are conscious can provide clarity in terms of why this keeps happening over and over again, then it's possible that we can convince people to understand the necessity in terms of, you know, actually being conscious in terms of thought. Because the only thing that's going to sustain this thing, you know, uh, this, this move toward rep- liberation is consciousness. We have to actually think about what it is that we're up against and how we're going to overcome what we're up against. And consciousness we have to have if that is to be achieved. Okay, Brother Kamal. He also talked about the question of mobilization versus organization. And he talks about how the enemy can use mobilization against the people. Talk a little bit about your lesson. What you learned from the works and the life of Brother Kwame Kure around this whole issue of mobilization versus organization? Well, um, as we understand it, mobilization is is temporary. You know, uh, uh, we mobilize, as he said, we sh- we should be mobilizing around issues. Uh, even though we should be conscious of what the issues are, we should know what the issues are. But to mobilize our people around issues, when the issue is uh, is over or we say we have solved that particular problem, blah, 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 then we we disperse. But uh, organization is forever. It's relentless. We continue because, because the, the tide drifts in terms of what our struggle is for or what we needed to do. Uh, our people must always be conscious of what they're doing. I mean, we don't want to be scattered all over the planet uh, going in different directions. We have to be organized, organized. I mean, uh, uh, it's very very uh, explicit in terms of what, he, what, what Kwame was saying about the conscious mind. I mean, uh, we, we we take it for granted sometimes, you know, if we come out and rally, blah, 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 around a particular issue, 
then we're gone. But the, the enemy is still there. We are still struggling for what we were struggling for 50 years ago. We're still struggling against the enemy. The enemy is still here. He hasn't gone anywhere. Matter of fact, he is, he is, he is organized. He's not mobile. He's still here. You know, he's, he's still the oppressor. Uh, so, I mean, this is, uh, well, you know, from my perspective, what what Kwame was, was saying and what we've been struggling with uh, among ourselves. We must keep ourselves conscious. Thank you, Brother Kamal. Brother Anthony, can you speak yes. to this whole question? Can you speak to this whole question of power? You know, you alluded to what we fight for. You we fight for power. Many times when you see different organizations, they have all kinds of goals and objectives, but it never leads to the issue of power that will have the means to change what we need or give us what we need. So talk about this concept of power. Well, power power is the is the ability to to have control over over is to, for the mass of the people to have control over their own lives so that they can develop to their fullest human potential. And uh, in order in order to do that, you have to be liberated from all forms of oppression. And uh, that takes organization. Along with that, it takes the development of consciousness. And the way that transformation comes about is through political education guided by revolutionary ideology. And uh, for us, the correct ideology for the African Revolution is incrumism terrorism. And, um, you know, as the name indicates, it takes its name from the, uh, the thoughts, speeches, practices, and writings of Asashifo Kwame Nkrumah and Ahmed Sekoutoure, uh, the first uh, presidents of Ghana and Guinea, respectively. But um, uh, the, this constant—it doesn't go about. Uh, it, it doesn't come about spontaneously. It comes about through ideological struggle, making people aware of their unconscious behavior. And uh, there are a lot of there are a lot of people that are walking around that are not aware. That that, uh, that 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 the behavior uh, is unconscious, and the way to correct that is through constant ideological struggle with the people. Thank you, brother and sister Hattie. When you listen to this piece, the conscious versus the unconscious, what were some of the things that you took from this step? Because um, Learned from um, this lesson. Well, I think that um, he he brought out a very clear and articulate, intellectual but simple definition for everybody to understand the difference between conscious and unconscious. 
And so it gets you thinking on a different level, I think, when you really hear that and analyze what he said. And I did want to speak to just the uh, other part about those individuals who were, um, I think the the, the way he put it was that uh, people were utilized by um, the oppressors from the standpoint of when we would be reactionary rather than uh, come in an organized fashion. And so I think that another way to look at it is that, okay, people can be used in uh, so many different ways when it's a, uh, uh, when people are reacting rather than working in a comprehensive manner to resolve these issues that we face for our uh, humanity of the black person. And I think one of them is see that when you when you are in that emotional zone where you are upset about something, your oppressor picks out those individuals who are the most vocal and and tries to buy them off and usually is is very successful at doing that in any and every movement that we have come up with. Rather than using, you know, rather than us using that particular moment as a a way to organize, what we do is we just tend to fall into that slump and don't put a person out there to either be killed or to be bought. Instead, we don't outthink the maneuvering of this individual or people and just keep rotating people in and out, rotating people in and out so that, that, you know, persons can't get sniped off one way or the other. And so I thought that was a very um, kind of profound way. It's just, just, I could just think of so many ways that the oppressor uses those moments to do that or to say that, this is not right, why are you destroying your own and start blaming the victim? I mean, it just goes on, it could go on and on and on. If if we're not, as you all keep saying, organized and savvy enough to make sure that we're um, using our energies to the best of our potential, to not to be dehumanized, to stay united and organized. So. Those are, those are some of the takeaways that I had. And I think, uh, I have to say to Haki, he he really put a book in my head. I got all these books in me, and I need to hurry up and get them out. And, and uh, the one was, when is the European, the oppressors, when are they going to look at their history and do something different? Thank you, Sister Anne. Brother Moses? I'd like for you to get your response to the recent piece, The Conscious and Unconscious. What did you take from it? Yeah, it was, it was very uh, precise and clear. Um, the conscious people have a comprehensive understanding of the issues and how they all fit together, and whereas the unconscious are, are kind of just have a, 
uh, issue by issue uh, mobilization and uh, and spontaneous responses to to the issues and without uh, organized and uh, comprehensive plan of action for how to solve the problem. Uh, um, he said the role of the conscious was to make the unconscious conscious of their their uh, unconsciousness, basically. And uh, you know, so I think you know, like he was he was pretty clear about about the need for organization and uh, and uh, and uh, um, need to build a movement that uh, that is conscious and. Uh, Organized as opposed to just spontaneously uh, going off feelings and issue to issue situations. Thank you. Thank you, brother. Brother, brother Kamal, can you speak to the issue of the statement and legacy that Brother Ture often spoke to the masses of African people when we talk about how to move forward? Hey, you often lead this quote. African people don't need leaders, they need organization. What does he really mean by that? African people don't need leaders, but they need organization. Well, the organization is all of us. Once we're conscious and know why we, what the struggle is, is all about. As uh, Anthony stated, the ideological struggle, we must understand what our struggle is. You know, we sometimes become our own enemy. We fight amongst ourselves if we don't know what direction that we're headed. You know, one example I uh, have, and uh, I think uh, Bamboshi may have also, you know, our struggle is is basically the same wherever we are. Uh, Wherever African people are, no matter what level uh, economically or politically they're on, it's basically the same. Uh, the enemy is, is still the same. You know, we were in Bolivia. We met up with a bunch of uh, Africans in, in, in Bolivia. And uh, you think that uh, there'll be less economically and educated than, than maybe we are, which is a, is a mistake that you think that. You know, I, you know they, these, these brothers and sisters, you know, we, we had the opportunity to meet with them. And uh, they were just as, as conscious of Malcolm and, 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 and Martin and Kwame uh, uh, Ture as, as, as we were. You know, when they invited us, we talked and, you know, uh, socialized and, camar- and camaraderie. But uh, uh, the, uh, the, the, the organization is what we're about. You know, we exchange information. You know, the enemy that they're struggling with over there is the same enemy we, we, we're struggling with here. We must understand and know that. And basically what it was was, was capitalism. You know, they came in as slaves just as we came here as slaves. We were brought here against our will. You know, they, they, they struggled to grow and develop on a land, you know, that, 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 that wasn't their own. You know, they know who they are. They know where they came from. They knew that this was a Native American's land, that this the land of destruction. Who brought them there? But that was just one example to to to. And we, as I said, exchange information uh, uh, because 
we want to better organize and educate our people, no matter where we are, whether we're on the continent or whether we're throughout the diaspora. Organization is key. We say the total liberation and unification of Africa and Africans in the diaspora under scientific socialism. There's no confusion about that. You know, Carlo Death, what we find, he also talks about that we cannot continue to allow or to make the arrow or allow the particular history of Europe become the general history of the world. What does he mean by that? Can you give us some examples of that? Could you repeat that, me? Can you give up some example? Brother Kwame Ture also left the legacy or keep reminding us that we should never let the particular history of Europe come to the general history of the world. What he means by that? Can you give some examples of that that will reflect that statement? Not to let the particular history of Europe become the general history of the world? Meaning that oppressor comes from 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 Europe. Mm. Initial oppression of our people. Any other panelists would like to respond to that? I would. Um I think when he what 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 uh what what Kwame meant by that was that uh that we cannot continue to look at the history of the world through the ideological perspective of uh the european and uh that's the way uh history is taught to us in the school system we must uh and this is re- uh connected to the concept that the masses of the people are the makers of history. And that is we have to look at uh, our history and our experience from our cultural perspective, uh, from, uh, from our worldview. We have one, but we're brainwashed uh, through the media and education system to believe that the European perspective is the only one that's out there. It isn't. And uh, we have on experiences and uh, too much of our intelligentsia regurgitate uh, history from the European perspective. And uh, so we have to gain a better understanding of our own history and culture or experiences in order to look at uh, history from uh, from a world perspective and from the perspective of the uh, 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 of the people of the world, which isn't just uh, Europeans it consists of Africans, uh, the um, uh, Asians, uh, uh, etc. Everybody has to respect this uh, uh, the, the brain because every society produces culture. So, uh, so, so we have to 
gain a better understanding of our culture, our values, and what uh, and uh, look at our experiences with other people from the standpoint of uh, how they impacted our development. Okay. I, I agree wholeheartedly with Brother Anthony. Okay. I would agree with that too, and that's that's what I was thinking too, is that we have to teach our own history, just to add to that, our own history by our own people and not from the European perspective, which is a little bit a different caveat to that, but to make sure that that happens. That's what I think uh, he was calling to when he said, speaking to when he said that we must not let the European experience be the, the one, like to have the history of express as history of the world because in effect, we all do have our own history. I won't repeat what Brother Anthony said, but also that that history must be told by us because there's an awful lot of history that is African history that other people have written as well, Europeans. So we don't want their perspective of our history. And then we have to write it and we have to teach it ourselves. Thank you. I would add one thing. Yeah, I would add one thing to that, that I think what Kwame is making clear is that no one person makes history. Only the masses of the people make history. And because of how they teach us history in school, we believe that there's one great person somewhere who's going to free us. And we keep looking for this one person. Oftentimes we're looking for some one great man, white man to free us. And no one person make history, only the masses of the people can make history, and the masses of the people have to free themselves. You know, and another caveat to... Yeah, go ahead, Sister Hattie. Another caveat to that that occurs to me might be, too, um, that he's speaking to white supremacy. Because that's what it is when you have this supreme white literature that just put, puts his whole everything on everybody else, his whole expression, and has no respect or consciousness for anybody but himself or herself. So I think perhaps uh, even the whole idea, which I call white psychopathology. Tad up. <laughs> Thank you. You know, Brother Hockey, I'd like for you to um, take the lead on this question and panelists, others can weigh in on it. I think it's very important for us to begin to realize this issue of black visibility does not equal to black power. What do you think Brother Kwame meant by that and how that has been used to um, deceive our people, Brother Hockey? This whole question of black visibility, black visibility versus this concept of black power. Yeah, well, if your intent is to further your individual, you know, aspirations at the expense of the masses of people, then what good are you? So what if you're the mayor of the city? If, in fact, you essentially kowtow or simply carry out the wheel and the interests of the, of the system, then what good are you in terms of impacting the needs and aspirations of the masses of people? So, therefore, simply being out there doesn't equate to actually being of any use. 
So I think that people are beginning to understand the whole class question in terms of, you know, simply because, you know, you've got some status. It doesn't always equate to actually being in a position to actually do something for the masses of people. Are the panelists like weighing on it? Black visibility doesn't equal to black power? Uh, yes. Well, it- um, I think the uh, perfect example uh, is uh, the Obama administration. And to this day, there are still a lot of Africans that believe that actually uh, that actually having uh, Obama as uh, as uh, as a U.S. president is a high achievement. But if you look carefully at what took place during this presidency, the conditions of the masses of African people got worse. And not just inside the U.S. either, also in Africa, ironically. But uh, but the thing, uh, and I think what uh, what what Kwame was trying to uh, was was trying to advise us was to be aware of neocolonialism, because uh, neocolonialism is an economic system that provide a high level of visibility. But the power is still in the control uh, 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 of the hands of the enemy, and uh, and there are lo- and because uh, of uh, the machinations through which it works are confusing, a lot of our people are still confused about that, and still think that uh, that 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 uh, that that. Uh, visibility, uh, black visibility equals black power. It doesn't, and it hasn't throughout our history. But a lot of our people haven't studied our history carefully, so that, that so that there's still a lot of confusion among us because of that. Um, Anthony and Pellis, can you give us maybe some examples of how would this concept of neocolonialism would look inside of the border of the U.S. as it relates to African people and people in, in oppressed communities. How would that look in terms of form? Okay, well, that, I, I'll give you an example. There are several cities in the U.S. that have uh, Africans, uh, uh, Africans in leadership positions in the city administrations yet uh yet the the masses of african people are suffering their condition has not has not improved uh they're still victims of uh, poverty poor health care substandard education police brutality even with uh, a lot of africans in leadership positions and that is because uh, most Africans belong uh, that 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 are political officials belong to the duopoly, uh, the Democratic or Republican parties, in which we have no power within whatsoever. Yeah, well, if your value system, if your value system is um, equivalent to the value system of the system. And what happens is that those people in the business of power um, are very um, intuitive in terms of, you know, putting people in positions of power in the African community who reflect their values. 
And so those, therefore, such people tend to think that by virtue of, of their elevation, by virtue of their status, they like to believe that, in fact, they have arrived, not understanding they're carrying out the will and the interests of the system. So, therefore, the neocolonialism is something that's is, is probably um, uh, probably very, very, very endemic in terms of the way the uh, the system works. They're not going to put anybody, any African of, of consciousness in a position of, to, to affect real change. So the Africans who manage to make it up in the high positions to obtain that status are by and large Africans who are totally oblivious to the suffering and the pain or the aspirations or the, the, the systematic injustice uh, facilitated against his own people. So therefore, uh, these people effectively serve as neocolonial agents, and that's in fact how they, how, that's exactly what happens. Is that also by creating them, these people as role models, then other young African youth attempt to uh, hope to aspire to be like them never understanding that the be like them is only to perpetuate the misery and the suffering that your people endure. You know, we, Brother uh, Kamal, oh, yeah, go, 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 we're trying to tear down the system of neocolonialism, colonialism, and capitalism and build our own system under a scientific socialist government. That has been the problem in our, in our struggle once we are conscious enough to realize what that is. I mean, so as, 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 as Anthony stated, uh, if there's a mama, whoever's elected official in a Republican Democratic government in this country or throughout the, the world, if we are unified amongst ourselves and, select, and elect our own leader, such as a uh, Kwame Krumah was talking about a scientific government for African people, then we will continue to struggle and be oppressed uh, and be confused as to what our liberation is all about. Brother Moses, can you respond to a statement where Brother Ture made that no business never called him a nigger? He he popularized along with the organization SNCC the statement of hell no we won't go we won't fight in Vietnam Wall. What is the significance uh, from you when he made the statement no Vietnamese never come in nigga? I think that was a great insight. I mean that's it was a true truth uh, that basically the it was the U.S. government and, and the situation here in the U.S.A. and the, the oppressors here in the U.S.A. Uh, if we don't need to go to Vietnam to fight a war that's that in our interest, and uh, and uh, when we have we have the people who are calling us niggers right here in the USA, and um, so you know, the, you know, the, um, the, the to go to war for the imperialists and to fight the battle for the imperialists is not in our interest, and that was very clear. Thank you. Brother, a little bit to the question of the need for pan-Africanism as relates to being the only solution that would solve our people's daily problems. How how would that work? How would pan-Africanism play a role, at least alleviating many problems that African people face on a global basis? It would give us control over our own land base. Africa, as has been pointed out numerous times, 
is the richest continent in the world. However, the African people are among the poorest in the world. And that is because we are disorganized and we don't control the resources of Africa in the interests of African people. Uh, to get working together, we have all the tools necessary to de- to develop and con- uh, uh, Africa in such a way that it could ha- it could aid Africans at home and in the diaspora, and we would have a how a, a power base from which uh, to uh, 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 to be able to uh, compete. With uh, you know uh, uh, you know other superpowers of the world, and ultimately uh, defeat imperialism. You know, as we look at this issue of coalition alliances, and we talk about how to work with other oppressed organization groups, um, one question statement Brother Therese made was before a group can enter the open society, it must close the ranks. Why is that important when it comes to moving forward as African people, panelists? Before any group can enter into an open society, it must close the ranks. What lessons can we learn from that? Why Brother Therese made that statement? Brother Kamal, Boshi, Anthony, take the lead on that one. Sure. Um, he um, one of the examples he 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 gives is uh, the Populist Party, which was formed back in the late 1870s, and uh, that was a party that was formed by uh, by a, a group of Europeans in coalition. With Africans and Africans flocked to join it and help build up its membership. Well, anyway, uh, anyway, when uh, Reconstruction ended in 1877 and uh, the Populist Party was defeated, the European leadership of the uh, Populist Party joined the Ku Klux Klan and turned against the Africans and threw and and and. Drew, uh, drove them out of the populist party, and uh, the the contradiction was that uh, that Africans went into that uh, into that political party without the first being organized and having their own agenda in place, and so um, so uh, the, the lesson there was that before you form. Uh, coalitions, fronts, etc. You have to be organized with your own uh, program of action in place. That way, you know uh, uh, what, what what compromises you can or cannot make with uh, uh, with the people you are trying to coalesce with. Versus thinking we're alternatives to be a good, in order to be a good internationalist, you have to be a good nationalist. I think you have to understand what your interests are, and when you enter these these coalitions, 
you got to be clear in terms of you know what your what your what your goals are. So I think that's a, a quintessential what he's trying to say. What he's saying. Brother Kamal, one of the things when we talk about the life works of Kwame Ture and many African leaders and organizations don't like to test this issue, and now we call it the litmus test to see if they really love African people, it's the question of Zionism. Kwame was anti-Zionist. He was against Zionism. Why he saw Zionism as the enemy to African people humanity? Well, we understand uh, some of the natures of Zionism. It's a land question. You know, uh, why are the Palestinians struggling for their land? It's because the Israeli leadership and the USA and the British, the French, etc., opted to 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 co-op land for 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 for, for the Israelites. And it, it became Palestine. We're talking about land. We're struggling for land. You know, we must know uh, what our land base are. And uh, we're, 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 we're struggling to liberate the land of Palestine or the Palestinians, the same as we're struggling to liberate Africa or Africans. Uh, I mean, those questions are clear. You know, we're struggling for land. And Brother Anthony, he talked about the whole question of um, uh, creating an anti-industrial complex um, coalition. Um, why is that important to the African community and the oppressed community in general? Uh, that's important because um, because it is the military. And, uh, and 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 all manifestations of the imperial police that maintain our oppression, and so that becomes important because um, because imperialism works by maintaining this heavy military police and uh, presence in our communities, and they keep us oppressed. And uh, so we have to organize in order to defeat uh, all all manifestations of imperialism. And for Sister Hattie and Brother Moses, can you speak to the issue of Brother Teray taught us and showed us that the secret of life is to have no fear. It's the only way to function. What you make of that? Well, that's absolutely true. You, you, you can't. You said fear, correct? That's correct. Have no, yeah. <laughs> you can't be afraid of, of pretty much. Can't be afraid of anything. Uh, the way I see it, also, uh, you know, if you have a fear, you're not going to get any place. Being afraid of something, so one must overcome their fear in order to liberate themselves. You're just trapped in yourself, even if there's a fear that you have, especially pertaining to your who you are and how you and the freedom that you want to take. So, yeah, I would totally agree with that one, Brother Moses. Your response to this statement? Yes, they have a struggle, they have a win. I mean, you cannot, you, you must be boldly, you know. 
to in in terms of uh, making demands that their prophet speaks truth to the to power and uh, you know like I said, they had a struggle, they had a win, and so you know there can be no fear. Uh, uh, you have to respect the might and the 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 the, the uh, weapons of the, of the opposition, but you cannot fear. You fear that enter into your heart because you have a just cause, and the just will win eventually. If not today, then tomorrow. Thank you. Okay, closing out this particular discussion before we bring back Brother Turay and listen to some of the additional lessons that we should learn from the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. We would like ask each one of you to give your closing statement on how to best remember the life and works of Brother Kwame Ture. Um, and we'll start with you, Brother Kamal. Well, you know, uh, the legacy of, of, of Kwame, KT, Kwame Nkrumah, Ture, is that the struggle continues. You know, that that's that, a quote-unquote. I mean, that's universal. Our struggle and our struggle for liberation will continue throughout our lifetime. We must understand and know who the enemy is, and we must liberate ourselves and our people and our land. Our struggle continues. Thank you, Brother Kamal. Sister Hattie, your final thoughts? Well, my final thought is always we have to educate and we have to unite better and better and better. And never, 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 ever give up on it. Like the brother said, it's always going to happen. Even when you think you've made it, those who thought they had, they will they will understand quickly that they have not made it sooner or later. So it's always there. Thank you, Brother Moses. Your final thoughts for the night. Well, brother Kwame Ture had a great love for for African people, and uh, and you know he 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 was able to organize, uh, and uh, he has a legacy of trying to organize the liberation the various organizations within the U.S. Uh, NAACP, the different organizations. Uh, 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 the uh, Nation of Islam, etc., into into and to communicate with each other and and support one another. Uh, he had a love for African people, and and he knew that the struggle it was going to be a mass struggle, and it was not going to be uh, um, just a few, but it was going to be the many. And so, you know, we have to continue to, to struggle and uh, organize. Thank you. Thank you, brother. Moses and Brother Evan, as part of your closing, can you talk to us a little bit about the primacy, primacy of Africa and why Africa must be the base and something about the organization? How can they help build the organization? Sure. Sure. I think the best way to honor uh, the work of Kwame Ture is by joining a political party that's working to achieve Pan-Africanism the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Africa is primary 
because it is our homeland, our motherland, so to speak. And uh, it is our only just homeland. And that is why uh, Africa must be primary for Africans at home and in the diaspora. Uh, No matter where we uh, we live in the world, Africa is still our home. And that is why, for us, Africa is primary. And that's what is meant by the concept of the primacy of Africa, is that whatever organization uh, uh, we belong to, uh, we must keep in mind that that, that our first home is Africa. And that uh, that the lands we occupy in the diaspora were stolen from uh, the indigenous people of the Western Hemisphere, and uh, so and uh, uh, Martin Luther King had a saying that uh, that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere, and we've seen that proven throughout our history, and that's why we must stand, uh, you know. Um, you know, unite as a people and stand in solidarity with uh, the American Indian and the Palestinians in their struggles to regain control of their homelands. And also, and for people that want to learn more about the All African People's Revolutionary Party GC, they can visit our website www.a-aprp-gc.org. And you can find out more information about uh, Kwame Ture and also uh, uh, Kwame Nkrumah's secretary and uh, our position on various issues impacting the African community. And I must be amiss, uh, real quick, Brother Kamal, I did want to talk a little bit about or get you to speak a little bit about Kwame relationship to Cuba, why he was such a strong ally for the Cuban Revolution. Can you do that for our people? Well, just a, a, a footnote. Uh, if we, well, understand the history of Cuba and why we are in strong support of Cuba is because Cuba has, has been a, a beacon for struggling people, Africans in particular, uh, throughout the world uh, against uh, uh, neocolonialism, colonialism, and capitalism. Cuba has stood up for the past 60 years against an enemy that has been trying to destroy it. And, uh, and, and African people make up a majority of, 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 of Cuba. Uh, and, and it's a reason why they're in support of Africa, Cuba is in support of Africa and Africans throughout the diaspora. They help in, in the struggle in, in, uh, to liberate uh, Angola from uh, apartheid. Uh, Cuba has doctors and nurses scattered, I mean, throughout the world. I mean, a small country of 10 million people is Cuba. What Cuba has done for Cuba's men in Africa since 1960, struggling to help liberate Africa. Uh, so uh, this is why we are in solidarity and support, and we struggle to this very day uh, for, for, for Cuba, whether it's Fidel, Raul, or the present government and, and president. 
We're in solidarity with Cuba. Okay, and Brother F the website one more time before we close out. Sure. www.a-aprp-gc.org. And on that note, we'd like to thank all our panelists, our guests, our call-in. We'd like to, of course, thank you, the listening audience, and, and the supporters who have been supporting Africa on the Move. We'd like to remind you that Africa on the Move is a weekly program that comes on every Sunday evening from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, U.S. It is a community project under the direction of the African Awareness Association. We are here so we can speak truth to power, but more importantly, to play a role play an important role in trying to provide you with revolutionary information so you can critically think and understand the world for what it is and how you can best change it. We'd like to say to you, please join us on every Sunday evenings. Share this with your network and for this program. We have done it in honor of and memory of Brother Kwame Ture and Brother Nelson Garcia and Trubal. They are two examples of what it means it should look like and be like to be a true revolutionary. They have made a mark in the people history book and they will live forever. Until next time, we're going to leave you with some more lessons by Kwame Ray from the 60s, 70s, and 90s. And we encourage you, let's always continue to strive to go forward forever, backwards and ever. This is Africa on the Moon. <laughs> We thank you for your welcome. We have been allotted uh, half an hour, and uh, within this half an hour, we are to explain some of the lessons of the movement of the 60s and uh, its relationships of the 80s and relevance to the 21st century. I have picked about uh, five areas that I, I have picked about five areas which I would like to uh, discuss. The first lesson that we can come to look from the 60 and gain is the understanding that the statement made by Abraham Lincoln is a true statement. You can fool some of the people some of the time, but you cannot fool all of the people all of the time. This statement can be understood within the context of United States imperialism and its role in the late 50s. In the late 50s, based on the resolutions passed at the 5th Pan-African Congress in 1945, a decision was made that Africans the world over must create mass organizations and mass movements to confront colonialism in Africa and the Caribbean in the final round and also to confront racism and economic exploitation in the United States. From 1945 to 1960, Within 15 short years of this conference, over 230 million Africans were to gain independence. Swiftly following in that wake, the Caribbean was to light a fire with independence movement, and of course, the United States of America itself, beginning its mass movement since the mid-50s with Martin Luther King and the Montgomery boycott, came to show mass movements everywhere. The American capitalist system, in the wake of the independence struggle in Africa, 
was trying everywhere to demonstrate to countries just struggling against colonial powers in Europe that it was not like the European powers, that it was not racist, it was democratic, it never had colonies, etc., etc. The African masses in America came to put that lie to arrest quickly. Mass struggle inside the country came to demonstrate before the entire world that America was far from being a democratic country. It came to demonstrate, in fact, that countries in Africa were much further advanced in democracy than America ever was. Here, at least, Africans can vote. In America, they could not. One of the lessons, then, that we must draw squarely from the 60s is an understanding that real struggle must be left and must be understood only by the masses of the people. It is the masses of the people who could not believe the lies of America and came to struggle instinctively against these lies. This instinctive struggle must be properly understood. History, of course, is made both consciously and unconsciously. Last month in Miami, Africans came to unconsciously make history by revolting against brutal conditions and pushing humanity forward. But this was instinctive, unconscious, unplanned. Indeed, this is the same aspect of the struggle that we saw in the 60s, instinctive struggle. Thus, if we are to draw a conclusion just from this aspect of struggle, that is to say the people struggling unconsciously, unplanned, spontaneously, and instinctively, that since people have an instinctive love of freedom, everywhere they will struggle for freedom. The history of Africans in America proved this clearly. Nowhere have they consciously organized to make advance. All the advances they have made have been unconscious, instinctive, and spontaneous. Certainly you can understand what will happen when these people become thoroughly organized. The lessons then must be clear. Human beings, like animals of the lower form, have instincts. Human beings, unlike animals of the lower form, have the ability to think and reason. The lesson then must be clear. All of our instincts at all times, under all conditions, must be governed by reason. The instinctive struggle of the 60s, the spontaneous struggle of the 60s, the unconscious struggle of the 60s, if they are, served to, if they are to serve to us as lessons, must come to be qualified in conscious movements, or rational movements, and planned movements. This then seems to me to be the first lesson that we would have to acquire from the 60s. <clears throat> of course, the capitalist system lies all the time. Some people think it lies some of the time, but it lies all of the time. And in lying, it has an attempt to make us think that in the 60s we were an organized people and everything was all right. We were not organized. We were a mobilized people. Thus are we to get a heavy lesson from the 60s. The lessons must be clear. A mobilized people, really, an instinctive people, a spontaneous people who struggle, struggle like animals. Even if we take the example of Miami, we can see it clearly here. In Miami, we're oppressed, just like we are everywhere else. But we wait until an outside force provokes us into action. Everywhere you will see us, it is always an outside force that provokes the African masses into action, even on the campus here. I told some brothers the other day, you want to organize all the African students on the campus? I can do it overnight. All I got to do is write a filthy sign, derogatory against them, put them on the campus. Next day, they all come to the meeting. <laughs> 
And one of the errors that must be corrected, a people struggling for their freedom cannot depend upon an external force to push them into motion. They must have an internal dynamism of their own. Consequently, the African masses, in drawing lessons from the 60s, must come clearly to understand that they must have a dynamism in their hands to tell them when to attack the enemy, how to attack the enemy, and where to carry their struggle. Thus, the 60s must come to be qualified from a mobilized struggle to an organized struggle. We say they fight like animals. You back an animal up against the wall, and the animal, even a rabbit, will come out striking at you until you back up. Those Africans, once provoked, come out striking wildly, as they do in Miami. The police retreat, give them some concessions, they sit down, and then the police comes back with more repression. None of the gains made by a, by a mobilized people can be maintained. It is only an organized people who can make gains and use those gains to further their struggle. Indeed, the gains made by the 60s, since they were made by an unorganized people in a state of mobilization, have not been used by the people, but in fact used by the enemy against the people. It is clear for the history of Africans in America that unlike others in this country, the history is not the same, entirely different from everybody else. All those who came here came here expecting a better life. An African put on a slave ship from Africa knew he was coming to hell. It's a fact. Consequently, the relationship between the country cannot be same unless this African has lost consciousness of his history and think that he came on the Mayflower. <laughs> this aspect of organization from mobilization must be properly understood. No individual African in this country makes any advancement based on his individual talents or worth. All individual advancements are based on mass struggle. This must be properly understood and can be properly underlined for you once you know the history of Africans is not the same as the history of others. We make no progress in this country without shedding our blood. No one sitting in this audience can give me one example where Africans in this country have made any progress without shedding their blood. In order for them to get into a filthy five and ten cent store, they must shed their blood. In order to sit on a bus where they pay the same amount as everybody else do, they must shed their blood. In order to get their children into state schools where they pay taxes more than anybody else, they must shed their blood. In order to get the vote which every immigrant gets the minute he comes here, they must shed their blood. Consequently, any advances made by any individual African is made as a result of mass struggle. Thus, that position does not belong to the individual African, it belongs to the people. Failure to use this position for the benefit of the people is a betrayal of the blood of the people. Consequently, when we come to correct the 60s and look properly at the lessons, we must become an organized people who, once having made gains, are capable of choosing for ourselves who will occupy those gains. They come to talk about some man named Brown who's going to be head of the Democratic Party. Who picked him? Who picked him? Did the African masses in the Democratic Party pick him? Not at all. As a matter of fact, the Democratic Party holds the Africans in great contempt. They have more elected positions than any other ethnic group in the Democratic Party and has no power in the party at all. They have 302 mayors, 20 congresspeople, 5,000 state, county, local, but no other ethnic group in this country has those many elected officials and still they have no power in the Democratic Party. Why? Because we are not organized. Consequently, to transform our movement, to push it to higher levels, which it must go, because we will arrive at our freedom, if even instinctively, 
We must come here to put ration and clear reasoning to our struggle and organize the masses of our people. The second lesson we wish to speak of is the role of students. Students, of course, have a role in any society, capitalist society, social society, and their role is to institutionalize the values of the given society. Conscious, of course, in a capitalist system, this should be done unconsciously. But students are the spark of revolution. Of course, we make a difference here between revolution and reform. Those who want reform seek to work, I guess, from the top down. Those of us who understand fundamental changes know it must come from the bottom up. The students, of course, always work at the point of ideas in a society. Their job is to acquire knowledge, and of course, this knowledge which they acquired is geared by an ideology which tells them what to do with it. So if you're a doctor, instead of curing cancer, you should turn a man to a woman to get money even though she can't make babies. <laughs> that was life. Students, we say, at the point of ideas and the point of values. When one speaks of revolution, one speaks of overturning the values of a given society. If one is not speaking of overturning the values, then one speaks of reform. Thus, one can join the Democratic Party. We're not here to overturn its value. But certainly, if one is here for revolution, and one is here for people's liberation, one would know that a corrupt instrument can never lead a people to liberation at all. Students, then, we say, come to question the values of a society. Of course, in relationship to the values, students, just like anyone in any society, have but two alternatives. Either they accept the values or they reject the values. It's as simple as that. Of course, if they reject the values, they have a responsibility to find alternative values. But either you accept cheating as a student or you reject it. It's as simple as that. Either you accept any value in the society or you reject it. Students, once having rejected a society, bringing together their ideas and their energies and strength to work against these values connected with the masses always give us revolution. Thus, from the 60s, while the reform movement, we were able to see that students, joined with the masses of the people, came to bring a lot of changes to the country. Thus, we must not confuse ourselves. The job of students is clear here. Their job is to spark revolution. Students cannot carry revolution through to the end. The final triumph of revolution must be carried through to the end by the masses, the workers, and the peasants. But students play a crucial role. We say they spark revolution. Certainly, if we did not recognize this, the enemy did. The FBI, before the 60s, did not have informers on college campus. After the 60s, they put an informer on every college campus in the country. Their job was simple, stop any activity at all that runs against the status quo. We say it's a mobilized people who can allow this, because when you're mobilized and fight like an animal, after you get tired and you wind down, then the enemy comes back stronger than he did before. Students spark revolution, and we must work everywhere to have students live up to their responsibility of sparking revolution. Here, of course, it calls for the students properly understanding the role of knowledge. Knowledge has but one purpose. Its purpose is to alleviate the sufferings of humanity. Knowledge has but one purpose. Its purpose is to alleviate the sufferings of humanity. Capitalism is a backward and stupid system. Capitalism is a contemptuous system. Capitalism is a system made on profit. It will make a commodity out of everything. It will take my mother and sell her on a slave block. It will make students acquire knowledge and make them sell their knowledge on the slave block to advance themselves rather than serving humanity. The struggle becomes especially crucial for African students. We say no individual African in this country makes any advance unless it is a result as mass struggle. 
Any student sitting in any seat in any college in America know that they didn't gain that seat through their own individual talents, but only through the struggles of the masses of their people. Thus, that seat belongs to the people. The knowledge they acquire there must be used for the people, otherwise they have already betrayed the people and have repeated errors. Uh, thus, students of the 80s going into the 90s have a responsibility to use their knowledge to help advance the struggles of humanity. We say the lessons here must be properly understood, and the students going to spot these movements must go properly organized in order to bring organizational skills to the masses of the people. The third area. The 1960s, of course, was a mobilized area, and in a mobilized area, there would be a lot of confusion. One of the biggest areas of confusion was the basis of the struggle. Some felt that the basis of the struggle must be made by appeals to morality. Of course, anyone knowing anything about struggle knows that this cannot be. Even Frederick Douglass so long ago told us that uh, power concedes nothing without demands. It never did, and it certainly never will. Consequently, what was learned from the struggles of the 60s is that when one comes to struggle, one must struggle for power, not for morality. Certainly, one cannot speak of morality when one is speaking to capitalism. It is an immoral system. It has no conscience. It knows only its own interest. It will commit genocide to take land from the red man. It will commit slavery to enrich itself. It will drop napalm bombs on babies in Vietnam. Consequently, when we come to talk of advancing ourselves through power, we must come to speak of just that, power. And we must understand that the only place we find power is through the organized masses. Simply put, until the masses of our people are organized, we will remain powerless and thus the victims of all vicious powers that seek to exploit us. The question of morality, of course, must not be put aside, no. But it is clear that any struggling people struggling for justice are already struggling uh, for a moral struggle. Consequently here, the question of morality doesn't lay with them, but with the enemy who seeks to keep them oppressed. We must then understand clearly that when we look for power in the 90s, we must look, when, we look for, when we struggle in the 90s to advance ourselves, we must struggle only based on our own power, the, power of the, the ability to organize our people. Of course, we said that we advance only through mass struggle, and that is clear. Consequently, we must come to understand that it is only through mass organization and conscious mass struggle that we will properly arrive at our liberation in a planned manner. This leads to another point which must be clear, the questions of coalitions. The 1960s, of course, made many errors with coalitions. Here, we... If you like to have a copy of this program others, please email us at Africa on the move to at gmail.com. This country, immediately after the Civil War, there arose at that time a party known as the Populist Party. One of the leaders of the Populist Party was a man by the name of Tom Watson, a white man from Georgia. Watson came after the Civil War to tell the Africans that the rich white man, he exploits the poor white man and the poor African. And consequently, what we need to do is to join an alliance against the rich white man. Well, you know, as Africans, we just love anything anybody. We just ran into the party. <laughs> we filled the party of the populist. We did work for the populist. We were everywhere in the populist party. After the Hayes-Tilden Compromise, when the government decided to give the South back to the slave masters, 
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.